On today's episode, Dave interviews Paul Dooley. Paul has been in Robert Altman's films Popeye, The Player, A Perfect Couple, A Wedding, Opposite Carol Burnett, and Health, a film he wrote with Altman. He's been in Waiting for Guffman, 16 Candles, and Breaking Away. On television, his career spans from Get Smart to Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. So I've been, yeah, I've been doing this for, uh, uh, for two, almost two years. And it's just been a blast to do. It's just like chatting. With you people. have a lot of followers now. I don't know. I don't. I, I, it's it's a weird thing because you don't know, relatively speaking, like how many people do you have relatively? Because there are some people that will get, like Adam Carolla, I think will get like a million people. Uh, he has the most downloads of anybody, a million people. Probably because he's filthy. Yes. He's a pretty edgy guy. Yeah. A lot of those guys are filthy and edgy. And oh, most sure. of my stuff, my this is just about, the journey. So we really, I talk about the journey and I talk about, seldom do I talk about what project are you working on? Cause I just don't care. Cause anybody, cause it's certainly looking at the stuff that you've done. You've had, you've been, you've done so much stuff. And I look at that and I think how exciting that is that you've never stopped working. Well, it's true that uh, I had a, a break in, you know, how we all have trouble starting, right? I never gave up my part-time jobs for about almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. I'd be in something in show business for three weeks, then I'd be off for a month. What would you do? What was the part-time job? I had a lot of different jobs. I worked at an advertising agency. Uh, copywriter? No, not a copywriter. I, I tried to get a job that was evening so I could go out in the days and make the rounds. Mm-hmm. It was from 5 to 10 in the evening, and a lot of actors were there. In New York? In New York and Young and Rubicam agency. Right. And every Friday, the guy would say, who can come back next week? And it didn't matter. Some came back, some didn't. And we were, we were grading and coding and editing questionnaires sent out to uh, consumers. You right. Know. So you were on the, uh, the, the uh, metrics of the ad game, not the... Not the other side. The other side. Not the other side. But later, I got on the other side because with Andrew Duncan, I wrote 9 million radio spots. So Andrew Duncan was uh, he was he was also a Second City alumni, wasn't he? Or my I don't know if he came to the he came maybe once early. Uh huh. Right. But uh, he was in the original company of Second City with Mina and uh, right. That's what I thought. Yeah, Paul Sand and he was the one that did the commercials for mustard or something. Oh, he did a a million commercials. He was uh, he did a commercial for. uh, Oscar Meyer Wieners. Maybe that's what I was thinking about. And he did a ton of them. We mm-hmm. all did. See, what they wanted at that time was when Second City came to New York after about four or five years in, in Chicago, and they did a Broadway version. It didn't run that long, but then they moved it to the Greenwich Village. And a lot of the actors wanted to defect and go back to Chicago because as long as we're in a cabaret where people can drink and have hamburgers, we might as well go home. Right. So they begged them to stay there until they got the Broadway reviews attached to the off-Broadway cabaret. So they hired me to be an understudy so they could at least take vacations. Right. So I'd never improvised. I didn't even know about listen and agree. I just had a little background as a, a stand-up and a, a sketch actor. How, who, how did you get that training? Well, uh, I, uh, I worked on being a stand-up in my uh, late... 20s and uh, 
I didn't have very many great jobs, but I was lucky enough to uh, uh, get on the uh, Tonight Show with Jack Parr. I did several visits there. Okay, no wait. You just don't say that you want to do that, and then that happens. That's right. <laughs> I had this little cockamamie act. I had about thirty minutes. Mm -hmm. I had these club dates that weren't very interesting. They weren't in the Catskills. They were just more or less around tri-state area near mm -hmm. New York. But I once went to a place where there were um, thirty or forty accountants in the audience and their wives. And so I did my bit, and instead of being joke after joke unrelated, which is most stand-up is, I was more doing what, uh, more more like what Jonathan Winters might do, or or Shelley Berman, or mm -hmm. Bob Newhart, or contemporary at that time. It was more like an actor's version of stand-up. Right. I would do a, a sketch, uh, a one-man sketch with the beginning, middle, and end. So they loved me at this place. I went over big. Two days later, I get a call from the guy who's Jonathan Winters' manager. Come up to the office. I want to talk to you. He says, my brother is an accountant. He saw you up in Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. He said, uh, he says, you're very funny. Show me some of your stuff. So I ran through some of my things with one guy. He said, okay. And he called me the next day. He said, we're going to meet Jack Parr. So it was only because of his connection, because Johnny used to be a big favorite with Pat Jack Parr, probably, right. on, probably on once a week. And he cracked him up because, you know, Winters can do that. Um, so I go up on audition, and usually now you won't even meet Dave Letterman or any of these people. You meet talent. Uh, you meet the booker. Bookers, yeah, talent coordinators type. Uh, but uh, Jack Parr is there with his minions, maybe four or five guys. And you think you'll do three minutes, and they'll say, thank you. So I do my best piece, and they say, what else you got? So I do another piece, and pretty soon I've run through my whole 30 minutes. They still seem interested, and they were kind of laughing, but they said, what else you got? I was out of material. But I had a piece I was working on, but it wasn't finished. It was an insane, an insane premise. I read in Time magazine where politicians are getting younger than ever because Bobby Kennedy and Jack had been become senators. A guy in Cleveland had become mayor, and they're all like late 30s, early 40s, and it was revolutionary, according to this article, because politicians are always old guys. So I used to imitate my nephew as like a four or five year old. So I, I figure out a premise. Well, what happened if they really were young and one of them got to be president? So it's a kid who's that old and now he's president. It's a very kind of old fashioned premise. Sure, sure. But they loved it. Mm -hmm. And in that very day, they said, well, you'll be on next week. And uh, he told the agent, he's a kind of a cross between Red Skelton and Mort Saul because Red Skelton had a mean little kid. Right. And Mort Saul was political. Right, right. And, what a great uh, combo platter. And yeah. nowadays, I think that if you said to somebody who's a cross between Red Skelton and Mort Saul, most people would go, I have no idea who you're talking about. Of course not, because that's got stuff so old. Well, I'm not just saying that. It's just like, like Mort's, when I grew up, my folks loved Mort Saul. We had the Mort Saul, we, 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 we had Mort Saul albums. Yeah. We would watch the Red Skelton show. Sure. And to think that that's the combo platter that people don't even pay attention to. And yet so much of that, the DNA of that is so present now. Yeah, and uh, well, you probably observe this because I've been paying really close attention to comedy in a long, long time, and since ever since really in college. Well, I started by listening to radio, but I noticed at a certain point, and I mark it around the time of Richard uh, Robert Klein, mm -hmm. where, where uh, comedians stopped telling jokes per se that were like set up payoff jokes. They start observing life. Richie Pryor was part of that. Everybody's sort of after that. I mean, George Seinfeld Harlan. is Seinfeld is like Robert Klein, right? 
and they're observational comics now. And for the last 30 years, it's been like that. But what I fell in love with, um, my act was more like, was were jokes, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of jokes you'd find at a setup and a payoff. Right. And uh, then I went to a place in the mountains, a legendary place in the Adirondack Mountains, where Danny Kaye had cut his comedy I was teeth. About to mention Danny sketches. Kay. Uh huh. Uh, it's called Green Mansions. It was there for 25 years. It was an old communist socialist camp in the Adirondacks, back when it was okay to be socialist and right. communist. And Kazan used to come there and direct plays, and it has a legendary background. So I'm there. I'm the third banana. The second banana is Carol Burnett. And the top banana was a guy named Bernie West, who, with his partner, created Three's Company and uh -huh. became a writer. And what happened was the writers lived on the grounds, the lyricists and the composers. And every Saturday we did an original review. Our staff lyricist was Sheldon Harnick, who created Fiddler later. Right. Created that part of it. Right. Uh, book and lyrics. Uh, <sighs> and we had these sketch writers right there. It was very, very alive. Uh -huh. Not only that, but in midweek we would do plays and musicals. So as an actor, you'd be in a musical. Two days later, you're in a play. And we went there a month early and developed a repertoire. Mm -hmm. And it was just great fun doing sketches on Saturday night. And then on one night, if you had an act, you could get up and do an act. Right. Did, did you know Jeffrey Sweet? Sure. So Jeff, I think Jeffrey was talking about this as well, about this. this Jeff wrote too. the first book on Second City. Yeah, right. But I think that Jeffrey was talking about what you're talking about yeah. right now. So, so, so two, keep going. There were two of them. Mm -hmm. One was called uh, Temament, one was called Green Mansions. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the one is more famous is Tamam because Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, Woody, Gelbart, all these people cut their teeth up there. Right. So when Max, um, I forgot his name, another guy, the genius behind that show who produced it. Uh, behind. Uh, obviously uh, a Max. Fiddler. Uh, uh, anyway, he was the uh, genius at this place. Mm -hmm. He was the producer. And uh, he did sketches all summer and on Labor Day, all the agents from New York came up to see the talent. And, uh, and all the agents came on a Saturday to uh, a and on Sunday they went to Green Mansions. And very often people got jobs on Broadway out of that, especially in the review form. But Caesar was up there. Sid Caesar. Yeah. And the first year of the Caesar show, a lot of people were marveling at how great the sketches were on TV when they only had to write one every week. But it's because of stuff they'd tried out a couple of summers before. And all those writers are up there. Uh, uh, the female writer uh, who was with the the Caesar writers. Uh, I know there was Gelbart and Woody and Carl Reiner and, and all eight of them uh, right. were great famous writers. Mm -hmm. The head writer was a Russian guy with an accent. And one woman, I forget her name. And um, so you were rubbing elbows with all these people. Everybody was interacting. With I worked them. first at Green Mansions and mm -hmm. then later, two or three years later, when I had had a little more exposure on The Tonight Show, I went to the other place, Tamamen, as a as the top comedian. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you're still yeah, and you were doing stand up at that time. I was doing stand up on their Sunday night, but on Saturday right. we would do sketches right. and plays during the week. It was a great place to work. And were the sketches all comedy sketches? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were all comedies. And the plays were they Songs, all... dances, and comedies. Got it. Old school. Uh, yeah. At one, at one place, we did Three Penny Opera. It mm -hmm. was still running in Greenwich Village. Uh, we did uh, My Three Angels, which are three convicts. That was a play that just came off Broadway. 
Um, it was a, just a great place to work. Again, Pat McCormick had a partner named Mark London. They were a comedy team out of Boston. Mm -hmm. They had tried out to go up there, and the guy said, well, we already have all, we don't have the money for two comics, but one of you can come along as, a, you can come along as writers, and one of you can be the head writer. So I spent the summer with Pat McCormick, and in fact, it was my roommate. Everybody, all the actors had a room this big, like a YMCA, mm -hmm. with just a bed and a dresser. Right. But because I was the head, I was the head comic, and he was the head writer. Our room was twice as big, with uh -huh. two day beds and two dressers. But mm -hmm. it was real primitive. They would pay you X dollars for the summer room mm -hmm. and board, but it wasn't add up to much. Right. You got three hundred dollars for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. But what an experience! I, what year was this? Sixty one at Green Mansions. Fifty five mm -hmm. at the. Fifty five. I went to New York in 52. Mm -hmm. So where did you get, so still, what did you, so you said radio. So was it your Jack Benny or was it your Burns and Allen? It was or, all of them. It was all of them. I, I kind of leaned toward, later I didn't, I wasn't crazy about Skelton because he got to be a little hokey. Right, he got very hokey. But, but as and a 12-year-old, I loved him. Right. Also, there was that show with Jimmy Durante. Mm -hmm. And you know who Gary Moore is. Yes. They used to be a team on radio. Durante and Moore. Exactly. Gary Moore married Lucille Ball. No, that's Jerry, Gary Morton. Got Gary it. Moore used to be in To Tell the Truth. And right. Who Do You Love and whatever those Was he the host of, he was the host of, of uh, One of those. To Tell the Truth? One of those shows. Mm -hmm, right. He was on a lot of talk shows right. and a lot of game shows. Mm -hmm. Before that, he did seven years in a variety show, and his second banana was Carol Burnett. Mm -hmm. You've worked with her. You worked with her on The Wedding, right? A Wedding. A, a wedding, wedding and also a, wedding. a movie called Health. Mm -hmm. and right. We, and we did that summer together where we did sketches. So together. you've known her for a it's, it's amazing the people that you know, that one knows, not just you, that one knows where you go, these people keep coming in and out of my life. <laughs> Yeah. And being inspired. Also, when I did Wedding, Pat McCormick was in it. And just as a dressing room, I was also his roommate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and every morning I'd come in, I'd be, my eyes half closed, looking for a cup of coffee and a bagel. And he's drinking already. Right. Because he was pretty famously right. uh, a, a drinker. So he'd be thinking, have a, have a big Jack Daniels there before breakfast. But a funny man. Never stop. He's like Robin in a way. Right. Never stopped spouting the spritzing jokes. His career lasted a long time. And then he he also got a renaissance uh, on game shows, too, didn't he? Like yeah. later on, he'd yeah, be he a appeared, great host on it. I think game. he did maybe 12 years with Carson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to be able to spot his jokes in the monologue. Cause it's so, <laughs> such a weird... He said, Johnny said, uh, well, it's Halloween and the senior citizens home in downtown Burbank is celebrating in their usual way. Same games, you know, bobbing for oxygen. <laughs> I knew that was Pat McCormick because it, it's his style. Right, the twisted style. Anyway, I was just always, I never thought I wanted to be a comic when I listened to radio, but I just idolized them. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'm going to do that. Right. Didn't think I could tell a joke or write a joke. Isn't anything. it interesting how what we think we can't do? Then I did a little, I got into a variety show in high school and just mm -hmm. imitated Durante, which anybody can do, and Red Skelton who's really the same voice as uh, as uh, Bullwinkle Moose, if you'll think about it. Now, just a moment here. Exactly the same voice. But a lot of times, animated people steal voices. Augie Dog was Jimmy Durante's voice. Long right. before they were going to give them any residuals for using their voice. So they did. So it was literally 
Are you saying it, was, it wasn't literally him as an imitator? God, it was an imitator, yeah. right? Was, right, right. What right, your right. doggy dog sound like? Right. Just a minute here. Right, 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 right. And there was a guy doing Bert Lars, Top Cat, or something. Mm -hmm. Another character was doing Edwin. That, that was also a golden age of writing for those. Those cartoons are just awesome cartoons. And yeah. Oh, there was some funny stuff. Right. I mean, the Flintstones were great. But you, you've done a few. You've done voices. You 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 do animated voices too, occasionally. I don't, I'm not heavyweight into it, but I did Cars two and Cars one. Right, that's a blast to do that. And uh, I did one called Turbo about it, snails. It mm -hmm. was out of DreamWorks, and I don't go up for that all the time. A lot of guys who can go in and do twenty five or thirty voices. Right, I can probably do four. Right, right. But uh, as I began to evolve and thought. Whether I wanted, whether I could do it or not, I began to turn my allegiance from from comics, like on radio, who told jokes, to sketch actors, mm -hmm. especially uh, Caesar and Gleason. Then I thought, boy, if there's ever anything I want to do, it's to be a sketch actor on television. Right. And, uh, and one of my biggest heroes in the world is Carl Reiner because mm -hmm. he doesn't look like the comic, but he can he has the chops for all of it. And Harvey, who looks like a sort of a straight man, but he right. can do anything. Mm -hmm. The two of them are people who I look up to. Um, Why do you look up to them? Do you look up to them because they did? What I, and I, wanted, I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to be a stand-up. I wanted to be that thing. Right. That heightened comedy playing, you did, know, that comedic thing. Did it's you, just like Second City, a lot of us. Right. You know. But, you, got, you, but you, you developed your chops not in school, but in shows. Yeah. I never went to school. I mean, I did college, but what I learned in West Virginia University could be put in a thimble about show business or acting or anything. Right. You learn when you get out of school. Right. But there's I a just lot learned of, it by getting jobs. And that's the whole thing. I think a lot of people, I mean, for me, I feel like, because I have a degree in photojournalism. There you go. And, uh, but I haven't, I haven't stopped working since I was 10 in doing shows. Yeah. And so... That's where you learn. Right. I had a very funny thing happen to me. The first real movie I did was 49 years old. Mm -hmm. I've done 65 movies since then. Mm -hmm. you, didn't, you didn't do your first movie till you were 49. Is that what yeah. you just said? Okay. Bob Altman discovered me mm -hmm. in a show. I was doing an evening with Jules Pfeiffer's cartoons, mm -hmm. which is basically like little sketches. Right. But it, was, it wasn't his Little Murders. It was just sketches. Now, I was also in Little Murders. Mm -hmm. Were you in Little Murders on, where, where was that? Uh, I'm not sorry, not Little Murders. Another play Jules wrote was the White House murder case. Yes. That Arkin directed. And Andrew Duncan was in. Right. And Bob Balaban. <sighs> and uh, Tony Holland. That was here. No, it was in New York. Uh, Tony Holland, was he also a Second City guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. He worked in Chicago with right. all of them. Right. Very, very, very funny man. And uh, Paul Benedict was in it. Right. Richard Libertini was in it. It was mm -hmm. a great company. And Arkin directed it. Circle in the square downtown. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I get in this this job with Altman. It's a fairly straight part of a gruff redneck uh, shit kicker kind of guy. When this was in wedding, oh, wedding. Carol Burnett and I Got were it. in Kentucky. Right. So I watched the dailies, and I say, "Well, I was." Wait, always... I'm sorry. That was your first movie. Yeah. And you got that part in your first movie. A big part, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, a big yeah. part. One of the four leads, the father of the the father of the bride. Right. And working with Carol. But what I discovered in the dailies was 
a lot of comedians, you may know this, shy away from dramatic acting because in a way they like to hide behind the comedy. They'd rather hide behind the mustache, the dialect, the character, and do more of a two-dimensional character than a three-dimensional character. And I always liked that. I didn't want to be in anything dramatic. I just wanted to be in something funny. Right. But when I started watching the dailies, I said, hey, I can do this. And then I made a kind of, had an epiphany, which was, if you have good timing, it works for drama. I never knew that. Right. Right. Any good dramatic actor is great timing. Right. You know, the, the great ones. Do you think, well, it's I look at- It's not the same as comedy timing, it is timing. Well, you look at Gleason in The Hustler. Absolutely. This knew exactly that millisecond to speak. Right. Or you look at Carol Burnett in A Wedding, or you look at Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People. Yep. He, uh, yeah. who directed, Robert Redford directed Ordinary People, didn't he? I think so. I think he did. Yeah, he but, did. But looking at those characters. Donald Sutherland and uh, Mary Tyler Moore. Say that again? Donald, Donald Sutherland, Sutherland right. Mary Tyler right. Moore. And right. yeah, Bob Redford, uh, he directed that. Right. I call him Bob because I don't know him. That's the best reason to call him Bob. <laughs> you also call him Bob Altman, but you did know him. Yeah. Was I, did, I did five movies with him. Right. So I said to my girlfriend at the time, because I was between marriages. And I mm -hmm. said, uh, if I don't do something really wrong, I'm going to be in more than one picture with him. Because I knew he liked me from seeing me in a play. But he's also, uh, he is an ensemble director. Uh, yeah. And you he are- doesn't an... mind at all if you add things. Right. And you're an ensemble actor. Well, I like it because even when it's scripted, I like that feeling of, uh, I think improvisers make good ensemble actors because uh, they do that little overlappy thing. And the point is, when you're learning learning lines and then delivering them, there's a little bit of art, artificiality in your delivery because you've learned them. They're not really yours. But in improvisation, at least they're your words. They're your thoughts. So in a way, you do them in a more realistic, believable manner, like a real person. Right. Andrew and I were sometimes called upon to be in an industrial film or in some commercials where they didn't want comedians. They wanted two people that the audience would think were real people. Right. So that thing we have of being naturalistic and a little overlappy, a little interrupty thing. The way that people talk. The way people talk. Right. That's what improvisation often sounds like. Right, right. Oh, no, no, it clearly does. And great improvisation looks like, great improvisation looks like it's scripted, which yes. is just a, such an interesting thing, I too. went to see one just two nights ago down at the Fanatic Salon mm -hmm. with Castaneda yeah. and Sean Masterson. Yep. Uh, Deb LaCosta. Right. Megan Fay. Uh, the Stein Kellners were advertised, but they didn't come. Those two people who write and perform. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Stark, who's a writer and an improviser. And uh, there are about eight of them. And they've been meeting once a week for a couple of years, yes. working on things. And just trying it out on the audience. Were Jeff and Jane there as well, but they're no. not part of that? Jeff and Jane were there. Yeah. Right. And, uh, Jane didn't come. I don't think she's feeling well these days. Mm -hmm. I went to, when I saw you, I went to uh, Fred Kaz's memorial and I said to her, the usual thing, how are you? And she says, fine. Well, not that fine. She didn't elaborate, but I guess maybe she'd been having some health problems. Right. And right. she's normally there if Jeff's there, but he was in the scene with them. It was it, a great it, evening. But you're talking about a group of people, you, going back to the onus of that of that that uh, that thought, you, you're talking about the way that they interact with each other. So there, oh, was, a, yeah. there was a naturalness it's to fabulous. that. And I, I think also what ends up happening is, no one's there to prove anything to anybody. Everybody's listening to each other. It's just to have fun. It's, it's to have fun in this. It's to have fun and to share with each other. Because I, I always think 
it's playing. Right. Literally in the best sense. I always think about when I'm improvising, I need my partner to tell me who I am. And I get to accept who it is that you tell me that I yeah. am. And that way... Which you, is a bit of a gift. It is totally a gift. You can't plan it so much. No. I, the way they I have almost it. a new form they're using. They say, this is a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Tell us some specific locations in that town. They make a list off stage. Town Square, the gazebo, the bakery shop, whatever it is. And then they bring all of those things into two-person scenes. When A leaves, B stays, and C comes on, and like that, it peels off that. Right. And when you get back to the original actors, it's over. Right. A La Ronde, I think it's called. La Ronde, or, yeah. Yeah, it's a like La Ronde. famous pl play. Yeah, like the, yeah, 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 yeah. Round delay. Yeah, yeah. But boy, it was wonderful. The first two or three scenes. Are, you weren't in it. You were just watching. No, it. I, just, I just got a flyer and I went to see got it. Got it. Although Jeff said, why don't you come and join us? We meet once a week. And it's probably in, in down where, down where um, Dan lives, because Dan, I think, is the honcho of the thing. Isn't I think Which he's, is down in Palisades or something. Yeah, that's really fun. And it's a long, you know, it's an hour drive each way or something. Uh, but I might go sometime. Mm -hmm. But uh, what was so wonderful about it is it spent two or three scenes expositing character, mm -hmm. situation, and plot. Then pretty soon... The fourth group is doubling back on all those points and creating new ones. And the fifth guy has all those things. And the sixth guy has even more things. And the callbacks and the uh, reminders are absolutely wonderful. And you're watching a group of people that are so on top of their game and, uh, and again, have no ego to, to their ego is not involved. They have, it, they're just out there having fun, but also creating some awesome work. Oh, yeah. And the, the sad thing about it is, most of it is not ever recorded. Right. Especially now that they're doing short form. See, years ago when there was more, I mean, now they're doing it long form. Got it. When I started doing it, you'd take a suggestion of character, place, and so forth before every scene. Mm -hmm. And then um, if they ask for the same thing tomorrow night, if you wanted to, you can do that scene <laughs> and perfect it. Right. They often did that. Right. They would work on it, some good scene until they had it into a real scene, then it would become part of the first show, the one where you invited the critics. Is that... So the old Second City. Did you, did you open shows at Second City? Did you... I opened some, um, yeah, in New you, York. So you created... They had yeah. Who was the director? Well, uh, Sills never came. He would visit there, but he never would direct there. A guy named Larry... Um, I'm so old, I forget names. Erickson. Mm -hmm. uh, Aronson. Larry Erickson. Anyway... He's one of the guys who was the early on was doing that. And Alan uh, Meyerson, who later went to the, with Tissue, uh, San Francisco. Right. To do the, the committee? Uh, yeah. He was, he was there at the memorial the other day. Mm -hmm. He directed for a while, but pretty soon it became without a director. I mean, Andrew was there. Alan was there. And Severin. And right. Eugene Trubnik was one of the early people. And you worked with all these people. And Barbara Harris is there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Barbara, uh, of those people that you looked at, of those people that you just defined or, or that you just described or people that you haven't, who did you look at and you said, I love the, they're teaching me a lot just by my watching them? Mostly Arkin because he doesn't do it in the movies very often anymore. And now he's often just an older guy as a judge or something. Right. He's kind of wasted. But in his early work, like in The Russians Are Coming, where he was a Russian. Right. He was a great dialectician when they were doing sketches. He used to hide behind the dialects in a way. I heard him interviewed once, and he said, uh, I, uh, I didn't know what I was doing when I joined Second City. 
although he had taken classes with Viola when he was 14 out in California. And Paul Sand was that same age. Mm -hmm. His name was Sanchez at that time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So Alan knew these people, knew Sills and, and all that. But um, I looked up to him because he did so much character work. Uh, the first scene I think I did on that show, not even knowing what I was doing, I was back in the kitchen and he read off, who wants to do this? No, who wants to do that? Okay, who wants to do this? How about unemployment office? And I hadn't volunteered because I was chicken. Alan said, I'll go to the unemployment office. Or I'll do the unemployment office. <laughs> and, uh, I said, I'll do that. And I thought, well, you know, I'll be looking for a job and maybe I can be funny. And he'll interview me. And he thought, I'll be looking for a job and he'll interview me. <laughs> Neither one of us wanted to be the guy doing the interview. Mm -hmm. So I start doing an old Italian because I had studied Italian in college. And he's doing an old Greek or an old Jew or old. He did all these characters, Russians. Yeah, he did. They all sound sort of alike. It was funny, but neither of us were. <laughs> we almost were on the same page. So we weren't the yin and the yang. You weren't pushing other. the pressure against each other yeah, yeah, in order to make that the, work. The questions and the answers. It was right. Eccentricities, but anyway, I got the job and I worked there a long time. Oh. Uh, I opened about three shows, but Alan left pretty soon, and Bob Dishy joined the company, mm -hmm. and uh, Libertini came from Chicago, and his old partner McIntyre Dixon came from Chicago, and he joined us, and Paul Sand joined us, and and Barbara left, and someone named Zora Lampert was in it. Right. Uh, I've never saw Some very good shows. Uh, I've, I've never seen. Barbara improvised, but I heard she was a wonderful actress on stage. She was a good improviser, too. She was very nervous and scared. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a little, you know, with her talent, she didn't go very far because she did a couple of features, one with Hitchcock. Right. Didn't she also do um, uh, that movie with... Uh, oh, she did Freaky Friday. But she, yeah, 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 yeah. She did... Um, what was the movie... Uh, Somebody got married. Uh, the day uh, Betty Betty Jean got. Oh, uh, was that Coppola's movie? No, no, no. It was with. Um, oh, geez, there are probably people. There shouting. was a title that Coppola directed called "The Day Betty Jean Got Married." Or something. No, this is a different movie, and it was yeah. like. Uh, uh, but she did a handful of movies. It was it was a time dash movie, and it, the 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 main star I can't remember her name, but anyway, that was one of the first things that I'd ever seen her in. Um, uh, but the idea that you started at 49 doing movies, yeah. what were you thinking prior to that? Were you thinking, I will never be in a movie or? Probably, but I was actually doing extremely well financially because I became very, very successful in the commercial business. Uh -huh. When Second City was in town, everybody went crazy for that company. I mean, Second I, City in New York? And when in, in New York, where right, I was. Right. I'd already been doing commercials, but mm -hmm. Madison Avenue glommed onto them. Right. But oddly enough, as much as they loved their humor, they didn't want anyone who seemed to be Jewish or strange like Severin. Right. So uh, although we did a few, generally Andrew and I, who were wasps, fit into their picture better because they weren't hiring people like Libertini. Right. And a guy like Severin is just too unusual. Right. They wanted straight looking straightforward-looking guys who look like male models because that's what happened in early television. A good-looking woman opens the refrigerator and her husband's great-looking and the neighbor's pretty good-looking, like a Jack <laughs> Lemmon neighbor. Right. But, so Andrew and I, luckily, because we uh, fit that mold, they were looking for an average guy. 
We could be the buyer, the seller, the neighbor, the husband, the uncle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we had some talent, so we did tons and tons of work. Right. And one day they hired us all. Uh, Bert Stern, who was a famous fashion photographer, who was right. now beginning to uh, to direct. A lot of those fashion photographers began to direct commercials. He, found a lot he of did money a bunch of uh, Marilyn Monroe yeah. photos, didn't he? Bert Stern. He was very well known. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fashion photographer. But mm -hmm. a lot of them would say, oh, you can give me 25 grand for a day of shooting? Well, I'll do that. They probably got good money shooting fashion too, but the commercials had more money probably. So anyway, he, there was a day, Bert Stern was there. They hired these Second City people, there were six of us. And they said, we're going to turn the cameras on, you do anything you want. You just walk on camera and do a scene and leave and someone else will come on. It was very open. No one told us anything. Right. So Severin famously, it was for Coca-Cola, he, he brought a can out like that and he said, eat Coke. And they were all doing funny, wild things, but I knew because I'd done some commercials. It was it was ahead of its time, and they were never going to use it. So a funny thing happened. I said to McIntyre Dixon, I said, "Do an interview with me. I'm the only person in America who's never had a Coke." He's okay. So he comes on, and I come on camera, and he says, "Worth a man here today, Mr. Arnold Johnson, found man." Uh, lives in America all his life. Never had a Coca-Cola. Tell me, sir, uh, would you like to try one right now? Sure. So he gives it to me. I take a sip and he says, what's your reaction? And I go, well, you know, it's got, uh, hold on a second. And the whole gag was I did seven or eight sips. I never told him anything because I can't stop drinking this stuff. So all the stuff we did that day, never, nothing ever came from it. We all got $500 for the day. A year later, I'm hired to do a job for Coca-Cola. Um, uh, with no audition, which is unusual in commercials. Right. We fly out to Aspen. I'm dressed in a skier's costume. I'm at the top of the hill with my skis. Susie, very famous cover girl. Can't think of her name. She's with me. And she says, you ready? I said, I think so, because he's kind of reticent. And she says, you want to you want a sip of this to give you courage? I said, sure. I give it back. And I go, uh, and it's the thing I did before. Right, it's right, the same right, thing I did before right. with the new name, with the new. That's why they hired me. Right, right, right. Without, without saying anything about it. But I, I knew it was probably based on that. An interesting thing, because I was just having a conversation with somebody who said, yeah, I did this, I did this audition for a bunch of people and I didn't get the part. And because I knew it right away. And, and, I, and I think it was a total waste of time, which he said. And I thought, you never know what anybody is ever going to see that you don't see and you don't and, and to walk into something and to say, well, the experience wasn't what it was that I expected. So nothing's going to come of it as opposed to you did this. It put it out into the ozone. People are going to watch it and be inspired by what it is that you're doing. Yeah. I also had a bit of an idea that if I do something that's not crazy and really compliments the product, maybe they'll put it on the air. They didn't, but they used it sideways. Right, right. With this, uh, and they called you yeah. to do it. I mean, I'm not a guy who knows how to ski or anything, so why of all people? <laughs> right. But it's not it was like John somebody Claude Keely. in the agency saw those tapes probably. Right, 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 right. At a certain point, though, it began to, uh, luckily, it began to have Jewish actors, Italian actors. But you, you can know. also play those parts as well. Yeah, but uh, it's like the movies. If they want a Jewish guy, they'll get a Jewish right. guy. Although yeah. they are hiring a lot of uh, Australian people to play American people. I know. I know you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we had a girl named Lynn Lipton who was a generation behind us at Second City. She mm -hmm. was with Bob Klein and those mm -hmm. people. 
she's a multi-voiced person. So she joined our little little company where we made radio commercials, which were created for people. Do you remember a group, I don't know what years you were in Chicago, but called Dick and Bert? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did a lot of commercials. Yes. And I saw a girl last night that with uh, Castaneda, uh, Miriam Flynn. Yes. She was their girl. She mm -hmm. was in many, many, many of them. And they were doing, for more money, what Andrew and I were doing in New York. Right. Uh, creating funny spots. But we got tired of improving their copy. So he said, look, just give us the facts. We'll make the story. We're doing the jokes anyway. Right. Put a button on it. Sliding in between the copy points, you'll have some humor, and that'll keep people watching. Right. Well, one day a guy called. We were, we did it for free for about a year. Oh, geez. Helping people. Well, you've done it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Helping people with their stuff by adding things. Punch-ups. Yeah, punch-ups, exactly, without being paid for it. Right. So I said to Andrew, you know, it's really valuable what we're doing, but they never give us anything extra, like double scale or anything. So we told the people who liked us, different groups around town, ad agencies who use us a lot. Uh, look, uh, next time, besides our scale for AFTRA, give us an extra 25 bucks for a creative, you know. Well, I don't know if the boss is going to go for that, but pretty soon they came back and said, okay. Right. So then every time we approached any new job, we raised the price. Right. So it got to be $1,000 just for the writing. And we said, oh, we'll do the acting for scale as if it's a bargain, as long as we got it for the writing. Because sometimes we do six commercials and it's a lot of uh, invention. Right. So uh, one day a guy calls me in Pittsburgh and he says, uh, I heard you and your partners do these radio commercials or funny commercials. I says, yeah. You ever heard of Dick and Bert? Well, Dick and Bert were taking all the awards at the shows that we would like to have gotten. The Cleo's. I said, I'm not familiar with their work. He said, well, I just called them there in Chicago, and I wanted a 60-second spot. They wanted $10,000. You know, write it, produce it, and just hand it over to us. I said, I can do that for half that. So let me get back to you. He called. He said, my boss said do two of them. It's the first time we made $5,000 to create commercials, to create a commercial, 60 seconds long. With us, it was always funny character, copy point, joke, copy point, another joke, copy point, another right. joke, copy point, blackout. Right. Yeah. Just slide the jokes in between the copy. Here's an interesting thing that I uh, pick up on that. There's also this thing about asking for how much money you want. Okay. That's a huge thing. And how many actors don't ask for money? Well, they, they're lucky to get it. and they're. Ashamed. I think that that's a perception is they're lucky to get it. But I also believe... Well, that's why they, In a way, that's how you feel. Exactly. But what if you didn't feel that way? I Does know. a plumber say, you know what? Somebody needs help. I'm going to go help them. No. And, and I get pissed off about it because I feel like, I why agree. should we not get money for it? I know. Improvisers are always exploited in that way. Absolutely. You hire uh, them because they... Gary Marshall, one of his early movies, Jackie Gleason and Tom Hanks. He got Jeff and Jane and four or five others, and they were the people in the office. I remember Tom, that. Yeah. Right. And they were throwing things in and creating situations. Right. Sure, they weren't paid a lot. Of, they weren't paid extra money. I was at Second City at that time. They were playing scale. Games. They were doing it right. for scale. Right. Yeah, they think you're doing you a favor. They think, and the problem is that we say that's okay, and then it turns into that they're doing us a favor. Absolutely. Well, actors are suckers. They love it so much they would do it for free. Right. And often they have to. Uh, and and yet these days I'm saying I'm not going to do that when. When you go to see a show and you watch, and so on stage you go, okay, the actors are on stage, the stage manager's over there, the piano player's over there, the waitress is over there, and the only person not getting paid is the person on stage? 
How is that okay? We used to tell people down at the Friars Club when Fred Kaz was there, you don't have to pay us, but you have to pay the piano player. Right. So after about six weeks of going there once a week, they said, we're not going to pay the piano player anymore. And he said, well, I'm not coming in. And I said, well, we're not coming in either. <laughs> I remember those shows at the Friars Club. About 35 to 40 people would show up. Right. And you were one of them at some certain points. Yeah. And you choose up and you have a company of eight or seven. You do four shows. Right. And, and they're great shows. They don't give you a nickel. No. Nope. It's a million dollars worth of talent for yeah. nothing. And you also are paying for your drinks. That's right. And you, and they expect you to bring the audience. So right. we were each other's audience. Right. The groups that weren't working would watch the others. But the one great thing was hanging out at the Friars Club with all these people. Yeah. So there is a, there is something to that. Yeah. Because um, I also remember doing the shows at the pier at Santa Monica. Did you do those yeah, shows? Yeah, I did that. And that was really fun stuff to do, too. It was, it was a nice stage there, an L-shaped stage. Absolutely. And it was bowling night. So, you know, you, all the people come out and you just go bowling with each yeah, other. we did that for three or four years. Uh, yeah. 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 Two of the best things I ever saw were on that stage. I mean, I've seen a lot of great stuff in improvisation. But two things that blow my mind in terms of invention. I can't think of his name out, but I'm sure you know him, but there's about nine guys who came out of Chicago who look like John Belushi and act like John Belushi. Mm -hmm. They're kind of tall and kind of fat, mm -hmm. kind of Chicago. Yeah. I forget this guy's name, but he is just great. Was it Kenny Campbell? Kenny, it was exactly him. Mm -hmm. So one time, uh, Megan Fay or somebody came into a space and she started running water in a doing a wear, running water in the sink, washing her hands, drying out, opening a window. And off to the corner, Kenny Campbell starts whistling like a bird, tweeting like a bird. And so she's, uh, hello, little birdie. And he walks by the pit, you know, yeah. by her window. Yeah. Tweet, tweet. You're a cute little bird, aren't you? And he tweets and he keeps going and he's gone, right? So that was cute. Not hilarious, but cute. So four scenes later, he's at the bar and when he feels this uh, transition time between scenes, he starts a dialogue with the bartender, talking about his relationship with the woman in the window. So we were, I thought we were close, but, you know, maybe it was a one-way thing, but you never call. So fucking complex and so conceptual. Right. And then right. three or four scenes later, he was up on a, on, a, on a ladder on the platform of a light booth complaining to the sound man and the light man about that failed relationship. I thought it was so fucking brilliant. Right, right. The other one was, you might even have been there, uh, there was a scene going on and uh, it was a, a, a father and a daughter. I don't know what the suggestion was. Obviously, he becomes an old Russian and she becomes the daughter. Tells us soon we'll find you a rich husband or something. An, act, an actor stamps on the floor. Mm -hmm. And he says, go milk the cows. I'll talk to the, this man, this rich suitor or something. Then the scene continued. So she, instead of going off stage to milk, she turns around kind of in a chair and behind her on the wall waiting for their turns is Ryan Stiles and two other guys. I forget the other guy's name, very tall guy who did a lot of singing. He was on Whose Life Is It sometimes. Uh -huh. I'm sure you know him, but I'm Brad so, Sherwood. Brad. Yeah. There were two or three of them, but there uh -huh. were just scenery, right? Right. Upstage. She turns and, and, uh, and she turns around, he knows she's going for the milking, and Ryan Stiles goes like this and creates udders, right? By putting his hands together. So the scene and continues, down, right? And she starts milking his fingers, right? Now he starts treating it in his face like an orgasm, like sex. 
she's milking him and he's doing eyes and things like that. And then uh, Brad Sherwood takes a hold of her and pulls her over toward him. Like he wants to get a, <laughs> out of your job. And Ryan brings her back. And now they're doing that scene, which is a sub scene behind right. the scene. The right. audience isn't listening to the scene. And at one point, she finishes milking, and it looks like they probably milked that joke. And uh, Ryan Stiles has a cigarette after being milked. God, that was genius. He also used to run on stage and say, more blood. We need more blood. <laughs> and that's it. He was really great. Inventive. All the people that we watched over there, that, that whole thing, talk about wanting that to be uh, taped. Uh, it was a Second City Alumni Jam at the Ashgrove. It was called the Ashgrove, right? Yeah. Um, and all the people that went there. Matt Granig would come to do, would come to yeah. watch him. That's where I met him. Yeah. And he asked Brad and me and two other guys to do a, uh, to write a script treatment for him of Cats versus Dogs. And we did it. We, he gave us a uh, an office on the Fox lot. He gave us a drive-on on the Fox lot. And he gave us a secretary. And he gave us lunch. And we were there for three weeks just doing a treatment. And, and talk about education just by th being thrown into there. And everybody just wanting you to, be, to succeed and to succeed and to succeed. And to get paid for that. And you go, this... Uh, I, I love that I'm able to do this. And now I think about it, I think, I love that I'm able to do this, and I love that I'm able to make money doing this. Well, a lot of people who have come out of Second City ended up writing mm -hmm. on sitcoms. Right. Even a couple of them wrote movies, even. Sure. I had an interesting thing that came out of, uh, came out of a combination of improvising. And I had a bit of a reputation around town in the ad agencies because of what this I, is in New York. I did in New York. Got it. As a guy who could write short scene, I mean, short sketches for industrials, which Andrew and I used to do a lot too, or uh, 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 radio commercials, or even sometimes on camera commercials. So I get a call one day to go to Children's Television Workshop, mm -hmm. which is uh, Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. We're going to create a new show right. to teach reading to older children. I mean, it was one to it was like two to. Two to four for Sesame Street and four to six was the target audience. So I never knew why they sent for me. But then I began to realize we had a lot of indoctrination and teaching. And they said it was found in the research that children have a really little have a short attention span. So they like to do short bursts instead of long scenes. You do very short scenes in a lot of them and a lot of repetition. Well, comedy is repetition and teaching is rep repetition. Hmm. And... Uh, so they had seven writers. Some of them had been copywriters at one point, and most of them had been. Two of them are lyricists. And they weren't working, obviously. So we worked for eight weeks, and it's right. Anything you want. We don't have a title, a format, a cast, nothing. Just something you think might help uh, help with reading. And, and this is at CTW, right? Yeah. CTW, CTW in, in, in New York. Manhattan, yeah. In Manhattan, okay. And uh, right down the hall from Sesame Street, the mm -hmm. same offices. So we did this for <clears throat> all that time, and they came to me at one for point. For all, all what time? How much time? Like uh, two months. Got it. And they wrote reams of things, and they said, oh, we'll find out what works, what looks like, you know, just write a lot of stuff. I'm sorry, were you 
Were you a writings. union writer? Were you a union writer? Well, as it turned out, it wasn't the guild because it was the money, salaries were paid partly by the government. Got it. You know, uh, in a grants form of something yeah, like some that. Grants right. and also government money. Mm-hmm. So it was. I got seven fifty a week. Uh, out on the coast, that would have been ten thousand dollars to be a staff writer. But they came to me and said, "You're going to be the head writer." Right away, seven guys hated me because we were contemporaries. And the reason they did that is because everything I wrote without my planning it, I used to give the name of the sketch, the name of the character in the sketch, a joke name. Mm-hmm. And then they saw them as uh, departments they could repeat every other day or every week or twice a week or every two weeks. They were departments. Instead of you do a sketch once and throw it away, mm-hmm. it's great to bring it back because he love seeing it again. Got it. For a guy who scrambled, unscrambled a word detective I based on... Uh, Inspector Clouseau, mm-hmm. a word detective, unscrambled sentences that were mixed up. These are, so this is, because this is electric company, right? Yeah. And it wasn't, they weren't Muppets. No, we weren't allowed to use Muppets. Got it. The reason was, we don't want a kid who's five saying, ah, oh, that's what my brother watches, the Muppets. Right. To them, it's all Muppets. So this We was, want him to think, I'm graduated, now I'm watching a, a big boy show. But you look at the, the cast of that, it was Morgan Freeman and Rita Moreno. Bob, Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby. And, and Judy Grobart, who's the second city, and right. married Bob Dishy. And uh, so I named this word detective Fargo North Decoder, right? The way it happened, we're having a meeting with some people who were teachers who teach teachers to teach, teach, teach reading. Yeah, sure. And I'm sitting next to this writer. And, they, and instead of saying, when the child learns to read, they use this high-flown $25 words like, when he encodes the letters or decodes. So I wrote in the margin of my paper, I write Fargo North, decoder. I show it to him. It's just a one-off thing. He shows it to the producer, and they say, no, that's good. We'll make a character out of that. So I created Easy Reader right. for uh, Morgan Freeman to be a, a being hooked on reading. You created all those guys a character that Morgan Freeman played. Okay, yeah. good. All right. And, uh, and I created for uh, Judy, I created something called Jennifer of the Jungle, where she's teaching a gorilla to read. Mm-hmm. The theory behind it was the kids, we, kids don't, we, we don't want to make them think they're being taught. A lot of kids who don't like to go to school might learn at home. Uh, kids in ba- bad homes, so they don't send them to school or they hate authority because of their parents or whatever. So I try to disguise it, see. So I thought if they can look over the shoulder of a gorilla and while he's not learning, they can learn and be smarter than the gorilla. Because all he ever said was, was like Soupy Sales' old white thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, oh, Soupy Sales. So Jennifer of the Jungle was her thing. Then I did one for her where she's called, uh, she was a chef. She was called uh, um, Child Chef Julia Grownup. Right? <laughs> and that was Julia Childs, and that was that was, uh, and I tried to. I did a lot of innovations. They kept telling me we'd like to not print the words in the air because in life you don't see the word supered in the air or on a chest. So I looked for menus, uh, recipes, billboards, and all these things. And somehow that has so I got the easy reader because I would have him read people's clothing labels, their watch. And whatever they said to him, the next thing he said was non-magnetic, waterproof. Stop that, you know. 
And they, they told him, said, we love reading. We all love reading, but you're taking it too far easy. You don't do anything else but read. So he said, I want you to sign this pledge here that <clears throat> you're going to try to cut down on the reading. <laughs> it was a reverse <laughs> angle thing. And he's okay. They hand him a pencil. He goes, Ticonderoga, number two. So I'd read a lot of these things. My favorite was they take him to the park to get away from print. Right. You know, on the way, he'd see popsicle wrappers and sticks, anything he can. They sit down on the bench. Forget that. Relax. You're in nature. There are trees. It's the sky. Look up. Forget about what's around you. And there's a long pause. And he says, good year. <laughs> so there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Did, did, you, did you have anything to do with the walk? Ing, walk, ing, walking, that part. I remember that. No, but I'll tell you how it came about. It was an accident. One of our writers was Alan Funt's sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Alan Funt, who did uh, Candy, Candy Camera. Cameron. She had married his brother or something. Mm-hmm. And she was a lyricist, basically. And she also wrote greeting cards. Mm-hmm. But she came on the show and wrote some songs. Well, one day she was at, I was always stuck in the, in the office. And I couldn't be in the studio. She was over there one day. They were doing one of her sketches or one of her bits. And they took a five for coffee or something. Everybody take 10. So she's sitting around and she's looking at a monitor. But because certain lights have been turned off, she's told two two stagehands talking in silhouette. And she says, wait a minute. You could bring, we could put words right coming out of their mouth. Cowboy. Cowboy. That's how it started. That was my favorite part of that show. (laughs) And you see, it's so... Teachable. It's it's really shows I, kids what two syllable words come from. But I also I I also feel that as a writer and as a creative person, everything is fodder. Everything is an opportunity for us to look at something and say that happened, and to be inspired by something. So to watch two stagehands, uh, two teamsters, yeah, whatever, yeah, in, yeah. in silhouette, yeah. um, and for you to or her uh, mind was well, open. But it's also easy reader, that idea of easy reader. Like, put him somewhere, and just by where you put him, you're going to discover what it is that he's supposed to be doing there. It was very creative, and I I spent a year at it. I left it, and they kept going for six more years, but they used all my characters. Right. One of my characters that happened this way, a a girl who's an associate producer named Naomi Foner, who's now a writer, a screenwriter, and her kids are Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. She came by my desk, and I'm writing something or other. She says, how about a soap opera for kids? I said, okay, let me think about it. So I started writing one. We were also doing a thing. There are three or four different kinds of reading, kinds of ways of teaching. I forget what it's called exactly, but there's one that the, the example of it is C-spot, C-spot, run, run, spot, run. Mm-hmm. Take a limited number of uh, words and create many more sentences by repeating. I forget what they call that. Basil, basil reading, I think it's called. So I was going to combine a soap opera for kids, basil reading, and uh, I created something. Uh, I thought of a soap opera named Love of Life, and I called this Love of Chair. I sat a kid, if you ever watch it, you might remember it. He sat in a chair, and he sat there for 130 episodes, and I described it. So it was the humor of describing non-action. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there was a couplet. The first one said, the boy is sitting. We put we super the words first, and then you hear the announcer, whom I got from Love of Life. Right, the real announcer. Ken Roberts, who is uh-huh. uh, the father of this actor, who's Woody Allen's straight man, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, 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 yes. Something yes. Roberts. Yes, um, yes. Anyway, that's right. his father was the NBC staff announcer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love of Life. Right. 
So I called it Love of Chair. So it says the boy is sitting and the super comes on first. It gives the kids a chance if they can read it or can read one word of it to try. Then even if they can't, his voice comes in and says it. Next line says, boy, is he sitting using the same letters. And again, they have a chance to try it, especially since they've seen most of those words before. And he's also heard it. They've also heard it. And then yeah. the third one says, the boy is sick of sitting. You know, boy is sitting. See the boy sitting. Boy, is he sitting. Yeah, that one. Boy is sitting. See the boy sitting. Boy, is he sitting. Boy is sick of sitting. Four things. And I said, will the boy stand up? Will the chair stand up? Will you stand up? Tune in tomorrow when we'll find out, answer the question. And at the end, I always said, because soap operas did this, and what about Naomi? Oh, that was, and what about Naomi? Yeah. That was your line. And that was my line, yeah. Because, my, because I gotta the tell woman you, who gave me the idea's name was Naomi. Got it. Because my mother uses that phrase all the time, <laughs> where I'll be describing something to go, well, what about Naomi? That's, That's crazy. Right. So this is what I'm learning. Um, this is what I'm learning. I'm learning that you have worked so much in writing in a way that we don't, the average most person, people, if they look at Paul Dooley, you, you go. Most people don't know about that. But that was a huge part of what it was that, that you that you, that well, there was a writer worked. hidden in me, but I didn't really know it. Right. And did, when you were younger, did you consider yourself a writer? Probably no, not. No, no, never. No. But I began to realize when we improvised, we were writing. Yes. Sometimes they'd hear us improvise, say, okay, we love that, but put it on paper so we can have it. Right. Because the advertising people are you know, idiots and they, sure. they can't trust it unless they see it. Sure. So I began to realize, well, if you're an improviser, you're probably a writer. And mm -hmm. the more you do it, the better you get at it. Oh, clearly. Because you're also yeah. looking looking at, at, at everything that you just discovered, structure, repetition. And I love the idea of uh, uh, comedy is repetition and education is repetition. Right. And the excitement. Look in at the math tables, and the, you know, what they learn. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah all that yeah. stuff, you know. Do your, what, do your math tables, is that what they say? Do your math, yeah. Your times tables. Times your times table. tables. Do your times tables. Yeah, and you used to teach them like a catechism, just yeah. mindlessly. But, you know, when Schoolhouse Rock came after us, they were doing versions of teaching through music and repetition and right. all kinds of things. Right, right. And so you have, you, have you ever written a screenplay? I wrote three screenplays, one alone and two with my son. Mm -hmm. My son is about 50 now. Mm -hmm. And he's good. He's a very good writer. We mm -hmm. wrote, the first one we tried was... I used to tell him about my brother and my growing up in West Virginia in a bucolic kind of rural place. And, and we, he said, well, some of those things you talk about are really good. And I said, but nobody wants to hear about what my Isn't life funny? is like. Yeah. So he says, well, let's work on it. So pretty much we made a very good screenplay mm -hmm. about a coming of age story. A boy is 14. And mm -hmm. Did you sell it? No. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's hard to even get people to read it. Right. You know how it is nobody wants to read things. Right. But those are, those are many people who have read it, so they love it. My wife uh, used to get a lot of awards from the Habitat for Humanity, and somebody over there took a look at it. And she said, "This is a perfect screenplay because it's subtle and it's this, and it's good for families, and it's clean and it's thoughtful and all." These. So we've had good comments on it, and we put it in some playwriting contests and placed fairly near the top. But uh, I don't know how anything's get made. How anything either. gets made anymore? Good stuff doesn't get made necessarily. No, bad stuff is made all the time. But isn't that true all the time? Well, there's a lot of bad movies. Where do they come from? <laughs> I don't even watch mainstream movies anymore. I've seen enough fireballs. Right. I've seen enough people dive toward the camera because of a fire behind them they were never near. 
I'm not impressed by green screen. They're all the same. They are all the first three minutes is a car crash. Right. They go down the aisle and knock over the fruit stand. Who cares? I mean, it's it's classic though. Also, did you ever die in a movie? Uh, Yeah, a couple of them. Uh huh. I played uh, Ruma Clanahan's ex-husband in a TV movie, but he came to the wedding of the new husband. Mm -hmm. He was drunk, and he was kind of a drunkard anyway. That was the idea. At one point, he falls dead, and there's a funny story about it, I think, because I lay there, and I'm just trying not to make the stomach rise up and down because hold your breath because you're supposed to be dead. So I did a couple of takes, and finally they said, okay, I think we're good. We're going to move on. And I said, I need another one. I was doing nothing. <laughs> uh, my favorite film that you're in, I think, is Breaking Away. And where does that does that lie? It's a great movie. Does that lie in one of your favorite things that you've done? Oh, the only great thing I ever did. I've done a lot of movies I thought were okay. You know, a lot of people love Sixteen Candles, and that's okay. But this was a great movie with a great writer. With a great Fantastic what? Writer. Writer. Tessage. Yeah. The script is great. It's a great script. I played my father, but he made every character, every one of those boys, had a different personality and character. Right. right. It was beautifully cast. Did you say you played your father? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes, you played your father. He was just like that. Uh huh. You know, never smiled. Right. Always. Of course, in this movie, he gets a little redemption and he runs to the race and says, That's my boy. Right. So right. So you have a, a little arc, but basically, the humorous part of him is. How sardonic and how sarcastic he is! About it, it looked like it was one of the meatiest roles ever. It's great. You can play dramatic, and then he has a touching scene on the campus, telling him how he built these buildings, uh-huh. put the stone up, and now I feel we're not. It's a typical here. dad story. He's a, he's a great uh, he's a great writer. And did you did you audition for that a number of times, or uh, like how did that? Funny come thing about? happened. I was making my second movie with Bob Altman called A Perfect Couple. Mm-hmm. It's the only movie in which I really starred, and I was it was like a romantic comedy with some sort of a, I think of it as a Jack Lemmon romantic comedy. There was comedy in it, but uh, he had the girl. We were the perfect couple, except it meant to be we weren't. Uh, so I was I never was had more fun on the set. I'm sorry, who was the woman? Her name is Marta Heflin, mm-hmm. and she's Van Heflin's niece. Uh-huh. She had been in Wedding, and she later was in Bob Altman's. Uh, Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean. Right, and uh, so she was kind of an ugly ducking, type, ugly ducking type, and I was eccentric at least to play the Greek. I had a family that ran my life, even though I was forty-five, mm-hmm. like a patriarchy. She was in the band at Teddy Neely was the band leader who played Jesus Christ. Yes, the first he Jesus was Christ, like a, right? He was a patriarch, right? You know, so we were thrown together through computer dating and. A lot of music, a lot of music in it. Anyway, I was most happy I've ever been on the set, maybe because I had the lead. I don't know. But I loved it. It was great. And I loved the people. And I loved, I loved Bob and loved to work with him. And a week or so before I was supposed to rap, my agent says, they want you to read for this movie. I said, I can't get away. I, uh, I'm in every scene in the last three days. He said, well, let me know what happens tomorrow. So I put it off three times. Finally, we finished. He said, can you go in tomorrow? I say, yeah, I can go tomorrow. So that was breaking away. So I go meet Peter Yates, the director, and Steve Tisich. This is all in L.A.? All in L.A. Mm-hmm. They hand me a script to say, "This look through this, and we'll be back in a few minutes. So in the first five pages, I said, well, shit, this is my father. This is funny. It's a good script. They came out and said, we apologize. We haven't got time to read it right now. Could you come tonight to a table read for the suits, for the, uh, for the studio? 
So my audition meant I could read the whole play, the whole screenplay. And I knew after 15 minutes I had the part because I know how to do that guy. And it's written beautifully. Right. So there were like 15 or 20 hangers on, suits and assistants and all that. Right. But I knew I would get the part because I wasn't so right for it. I found out years later they had talked to Art Carney about playing that part. <laughs> I went out to, you know, Gush Minnick. Right. There's another guy who sounds a little bit like Bullwinkle Moose. Oh, uh, like Red Scott. You know? Yep. 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 An old comedy kind of type. Did you find yourself up against these guys? Because uh, certainly there's, I mean, know that, that, that Lemon is older than you, but there's a similarity in your tone. Well, the guys who get parts that sometimes I audition for were Ned Beatty and Charles Durning. Right. As well they should because they were already more well-known than right. I was. God, Ned Beatty and Charles Durning. Yeah, and boy, later oh, I boy. worked in a play with Durning and Klugman. Mm-hmm. What play Falcon. was that? Well, nobody knows it was called Golf with Alan Shepard. It was about him on the moon knocking a golf ball around. Mm-hmm. But it was four old farts on a golf course. Who were the four? Tell me the, them again. What's that? Who were the four? It was you. Klugman, uh-huh. me, and a guy named Sonny Van. Uh, I forget his. Uh, Sonny Van somebody, his last name was. Uh-huh. Not Van Winkle, but like that. And he was the right age, but he wasn't uh, well-known like they are. Right. A good actor, though. It could have been called Four Old Farts on a Golf Course. Because on stage, they built one of the tee-off things, and there was a clubhouse. Mm-hmm. So we had scenes on the, on one of the greens. Right. It was a very nice play. We're all we're doing talking about our wives and how old we are. Right. One guy lost his wife. The other one's in the hospital. Another guy's about to go in the hospital. But it was well-written. Klugman was and to work phenomenal. With those guys. Yeah, right? Yeah. I'm doing a one-man show. This will amuse you. Uh, uh, I'm anxious, looking forward to it now. I've been off, planning it off and on for 10 years. But because we did this play that we wrote in two places, I got emboldened to do this. Um, I come on stage, and I've done this at Second City sometimes for a laugh. I say, turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and please don't take any pictures. And I start off, and I come back, and I say, oh, we have some visitors from Paris and they say, Jean-Toi, les fonçons de l'écandie. No, 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 du chanel, boom, no, 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 And I do a gibberish thing, no pictures of it all in French. And I start off and come back and I say, oh, and the, the group of Italians, and I do, there is the same thing. And the most important, you know, take a picture. It's really what Caesar used to do. Right. And right. I come back and it's German. Found a great half English, half German way of telling them one of those lines. My last line is, Und also nicht mit der Klicken in der Kodak. Danke. So I go off stage and I'm going to stay off for 30 seconds to 40 seconds and not come back. And the audience, I want to wait till the audience starts murmuring. Right. Then I'm going to add our soundtrack, which is people murmuring. <laughs> and I'm going to have friends talk about me while I'm gone, you know. In the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Light's still on the stage, but right. I'm not there. It's always embarrassing. But it's stuff like, uh, is that it? Well, surely not. They wouldn't charge money for something that short. And someone else says, where do you think he is? And maybe he went to the bathroom. Well, he should have thought of that before he started the show. So it's all that stuff, you know. One couple said, do you think he speaks all his languages? The other one says, I doubt it. He barely speaks English. <laughs> it's all making fun of me. Right. He looks familiar. He said, Yeah. I think I think he took care of me over at Jiffy Lube the other day. 
No, he just has that everyman look. And the wife says, well, not every man looks like that. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's quite amusing. Uh, you wrote it. Yeah. I wrote all this stuff. And this is a one-person show. Yeah. Where are you going to do that? Oh, first I have to finish it. Right. Get a director, then I'll get a theater. Right, right. <laughs> right. Find a theater. But I'm about 90% done. Mm -hmm. And you've been working on the show for 10 years. The idea of sitting Well, mostly, down... see, I'm going to show clips. There's a picture of me and Bob Dishy on the Jack Parr show. Right. Doing a scene I created oh. with Arkin at Second City, which is right. a pantomime dentist. Ah. Uh -huh. And uh, clips from me when I was 14, going to the Penny Arcade and putting mustaches on and hats and it's just a window into my life as a, as I got interested in. And I, I think that your story, there's so much going on. Like there's so, oh my God, you've had such a, you, you're having such a full life. Yep. Then I married this great woman who's hugely successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know who she is. Don't you? I don't think so. Do I? Well, she wrote my so-called life. Which God. Is an incredibly successful show. I do know that. Yeah. She wrote the book for wicked. <laughs> I did my homework on you. She's I didn't buy writing it. a TV pilot now. Uh -huh. She's written a play, a straight play, which is about to be done back east. She's very, very, very talented. And you've got this creative union between the two of you. Yeah, we write together. Too. And you write together. And my son. Right. And my daughter is 28, and she and I write together. Mm -hmm. There's a little place in Echo Park, Edendale Library. And yeah, once, yeah. once a month, they put on a an afternoon, and they read one act. So you usually read them. Sometimes they learn them. Mm -hmm. But they're a series of short things. So we wrote a sketch for them just a few days ago, which we're going to do. I tried to make it like an American python. You know how they're so insane? Their yes. premises are so off the wall. Yes. I can't say the letter J, or I can't say the letter A, or something. <laughs> right. It's very, very, very funny. But anyway, um, uh, I never stopped thinking of things. There's a guy named David Feldman who used to write for... 10 years for John, not, he wrote for John Stewart, Bill Maher, and Dennis Miller. Mm -hmm. And he's very political, but he's a comedy writer. But he's in between gigs for the last year, because worked for all of them, and now he's not working. Right. So he puts on a show in WPFK, which is Radio Sketches. Right. So I go over there every Wednesday and work with them, and so mm -hmm. I write sketches for them. And it's a lot of fun. I love radio. There's no makeup, no wardrobe, right. no Winnebago. When you say WPFK? Hmm? WPFK, KPFK. Uh, you said P WPFK. It's on Cowinga near Universal. Right. So it's KPFK, not WPFK. Yeah. Right. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got they it. all sound kind of alike. Right. They do. They're all. Who that, can that remember those call letters? It's the lefty station. Yeah. Yeah. I went there a couple of times to read on uh, on uh, uh, Joyce's birthday. Mm -hmm. Parts of. Uh, um, what's the name of that famous play with the, the Dubliners? What's that? James Joyce, the Dubliners, the the, the one with 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 uh, Bloom in it. Bloom, Bloom. Yes, 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 yes. It's yes, not yes, the yes. Dubliners, yeah. um, but you know what? It's very yes. famous. Yeah, I'm so old, I forget everything. Yes, it's so anyway, I get there and I'm working with Bob Odenkirk and a couple other great people. What I was going to tell you about this show is, I come back on stage and I say, "Did I miss anything?" And then I say, uh, "I, I say." Uh, I'm a character actor, and you see a screen that shows the dictionary character actor, one who plays supporting roles rather than leading roles. I say, uh, the audience sees us all the time. Sometimes they love our work. Uh, they recognize our faces, but no one, no one, absolutely no one knows what our name is. 
So I was surprised to hear someone here say, you thought it was Paul Sorvino tonight. Then I show a picture of Sorvino with his name under it. I say, when I'm clearly Ned Beatty. And I show a picture of Ned Beatty with his name. Then my wife gave me this idea. She says, you should say, here are some other people I'm not. <laughs> so I have Fred Thompson, Pat Hingle, right. and all, you know, people, Norma Fell, who play these deadpan right. roles. Right. Then I have uh, Vincent Gardenia, mm -hmm. who is a real deadpan. Sure, sure. And then after that, I have um, J. Edgar Hoover, as if I'm confused with him. Then I have Chief Sitting Bull, who looks very serious. Then I have B. Arthur. <laughs> then I have a thing called Grumpy Cat from the right from and every time I see it when we're editing this stuff, I laugh every time I see this cat. It's like, right, right. Anyway, that's in the first eight minutes. All right. See, All right. I thought it'd be good to hit it on the head and say actors, character actors, nobody knows our. I character. also love the fact that what just happened was you just went through this evolution where one person really kind of looked like the other person, and so yeah, you oh yeah. went from. In fact, my editor morphs them. Right. Pat Hingle becomes. Right. <laughs> the faces turn into. Yeah. So it goes from it goes from uh, Vincent Gardenia to the Grumpy Cat, and you go. There is a strand of DNA, yeah, yeah, yeah. a visual DNA yeah, yeah. that goes from that to that. I was first just going to flash them. And the guy at edits for me said, I can morph these. So Fred's, uh, Fred Thompson turns into Norman Fell. They're both facing left. And then he turns into oh, that's awesome. Pat Hingle. He turns into. So Fred B. Tom Arthur turns into the cat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop there because I could talk to you forever. I'm going to stop there. Thank you so much. It's just been awesome. Thank you. That was really great. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. If you'd like to see one of Dave's improv shows or one of my stand-up shows, you can get that information at addcomedy.com. If you want to take a class with Dave, that information is located on his website at davidrozowski.com. You can also follow Dave on Twitter at drozowski. Today's episode was sponsored by... Troubadour, a restaurant movie. A new movie by Group Mind Films, portraying an accurate, sometimes funny, and sometimes cringe-inducing glimpse at restaurant life. Troubadour, a restaurant movie. Available to watch in its entirety online for only $5 at groupmindfilms.com.